Good morning. My name is Paul. I was born in Newcastle in 1953 and lived in Spears Point to eight and a half years of age, then shifted to Cessnock and lived there for a fair part of my life until I was in my mid-adult years. I have a story which starts basically as a child. People talk about repressed memories and things like that. I am a late rememberer. I didn't have my main body of memories until I was 56 years of age. I did have memories before that and I'd had multiple breakdowns in my life, although I seem to manage reasonably well between those breakdowns. Although I suffered from multiple physical um, problems, um, the worst of which was probably I used to get giant hives all over my face and have a lot of trouble urinating and climaxing for me was a very painful thing. I virtually have no memory of my young childhood. Mm. Um, I started off with two um, siblings that were full-blood siblings. Then I my father and mother separated and I have a half-sister and two adopted children, one a sister and one a brother. Um, it was when I was eight and a half that we moved in with my stepmother. Mm. My early childhood, although I do have a memory of standing on a hill with a, flat, with a handkerchief in the southerly wind, but all accounts of my childhood have come to me as memories as an adult. Um, interesting thing is that a lot of the memories now I'm getting are more happy ones, but the ugly ones came first. I used to be terrified of my memories, absolutely terrified. I didn't want them. But once you open the can, it's like you can't shut it. And but at times I've been completely overwhelmed by my memories to the point where I've been completely unable to move. I've been walking and a memory would hit me and I would drop to the ground. Um, I've had what I used to call my 100-year-old man, which when I would have memories, I could hardly move. I have to force myself so hard just to even walk. Was that painful? almost like as if you've got no control over your body. Mm. So not so much painful, but like like you're walking in, I don't know, like really thick molasses or something like that. It's so much effort. Mm. And then even sometimes when I would do some work, I could only work for 10 or 15 minutes and then it would be so hard that... I would just virtually collapse from exhaustion. Mm. You asked me about my childhood, though. I'd like to state at this point that um, three of my brothers and sisters are all are dead. I'm 66 years of age. They all died before 62 at 50, one at 50, one at 51, one at 61. Um, and that's all due to the abuse from my father. Um, so... Oh. Sexual abuse from my father. Mm. So 
One committed suicide, one drank themselves to death. The other one, she just stopped wanting to live after, her, after I charged my father with sexual abuse. And then her daughter also charged my father with sexual abuse. And she could not choose between her daughter and me and my father because he was still controlling her. And so she had a fall and stopped, would not eat, would not drink and died of massive failure of organs within 10 days. I also have another sibling that is a religious fanatic who is extremely obese and then another one in a domestically violent at times relationship. So from one abusive father becomes a complete life of chaos and pain for all the children. My father was a pedophile. My mother was complicit. Mm. My stepmother was complicit. Mm. But she stopped, although my stepmother was complicit, she actually stopped my father from sexually abusing me um, when we went to live with him full time. Mm. She didn't, she did condone with children being used as sex toys, but she didn't condone on full abuse mm. and rape of the children. Mm. And I think also, too, her having a child to him actually brought it to the fore that actually us children have feelings. <laughs> of course, and um, this, was, this went on through your childhood. What? What about school? What was school like? Was that any kind of reprieve from the disasters of home? I was always lucky enough to be able to pass exams, even though I never I read one story fully, probably a 10-page story before I was 21. I was told I had dyslexia. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where dyslexia comes from, but anyhow, I was told I had dyslexia. I basically spent most of my school life not there. I have been diagnosed with what's called DID, Disassociate Identity Disorder, by three separate psychiatrists, mm. um, which usually is a result of being abused from a very young age when the brain is still forming. Mm. I've spent 10 years of my life since my memories working on myself, and I would say... 95% of my time has been spent on trying to keep myself alive and to try and understand that I do deserve to be alive and I am a reasonable person because as most of you abuse victims realise your personality, your person, your being is taken away from you and when that happens from a child you actually do believe you're worthless my mother used to tell me I was worthless. My mother used to get me to say, she used to say to me, what are you good for? And I used to say, have to say in response to that, I had to say, I'm good for nothing. And then she gave me to my father who proved that I was good for one thing and that was sexual abuse. Mm. So my whole life, all adults were dangerous yeah. because my father was involved with pedophile ring and sex clubs and so you were a toy. Mm. 
you were used. How awful it must have been. Family life must have just been terrible and no adults around who you could trust. Well, the funny thing is with that is because of having DID, I didn't know that. Mm. To me, when you've got DID, what happens is, and DID is a very interesting thing. I think it sort of helped me stay alive, to be honest, try and understand it. Because what happens, you can be abused by a perpetrator and then five minutes later, you're still there wanting their affection and their attention. Mm. So you don't carry that memory in your frontal lobe. You just carry it back in the back of your head in your... I don't know what it's called, the hippocampus, I think. Anyhow, um, so it's not there in your conscious memory and that's what makes it so hard. And, and I believe structured pedophile rings play on these people because basically they can come and get you any time they want and take you, abuse you and then just drop you back into your life. And they know that. Um, so in a way, like DID is a kind of, it has a sort of protective mechanism to it. It's amazingly yeah. protective. As a matter of fact, I owe my life to my brain yeah. for being able to disassociate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And everybody disassociates to a degree. Yeah. But it's just the degree of disassociation. And yeah. people that have DID disassociate to, to a completely different personality. I have many young parts in me. I've met a young young children, many, many, and I love them. I love them all. I've worked with most of them in my therapy and myself personally from all the tools I've learnt as I've gone along. And I think the key is to talk to every one of them. First of all, you have to recognise them. You have to value them. Don't say, I don't, with my parts, I, the worst thing I've got to do is tell them I love them because they don't want to hear that because that's danger. But I, I get to know them. I get to know them through right-hand, left-hand writing. Yeah. It's a very valuable yeah. tool. Yeah. Um, for me, it's probably been my most important tool. Yeah. Um, I never doubt what they tell me, but on the same token, I know that memories aren't always exactly as you remember them. Yeah. But on the same token, the fundamental proof is still there in the way you're affected yeah. and the way that your life is impacted I would like to say that fundamentally to heal, it is important that you get to know all of your parts as best you can, to what degree. I believe in the practice of inner children, yeah. where you can actually work with that part that's been damaged. And I've seen it work in so many people. Yeah. Um, I think the healing industry needs to have a major reshuffle because for so many years it's been run by people that don't understand trauma. Mm. But now people that are actually studying it are actually listening yeah. instead of telling. And fundamentally that's the difference. Yeah. I'm um, wondering too that about the impact of the Royal Commission on developing our understandings of trauma because I think that was one of the sort of benefits that came well, I don't really agree with that. Oh, yeah? I don't think they have any idea. And they didn't know what to do with me. Why? Because, first of all, I said, OK, I want a counsellor. So yeah. they said, OK, well, um, you can have so much counselling. This right. is when you were, they 
Because you gave evidence in the case study 42. 42, yes. Yeah, I was the first witness in case study 42. 42. Yes. And um, my godfather was Peter Rushton, yes. who was, I believe, I believe he would be Australia's greatest serial murderer because people don't realise how many people they kill, pedophiles kill. And Rushton, in the time I, he was in Cessnock for three years, I know of six people that have died because of him. I know, plus, I almost died as well. Yeah. Um, no, he is a very bad man. And then I also know people that have known him from other stages of his lifetime. Yeah. I know for a fact he used to go to Woodlands Boys Home nearly every Sunday and take boys from there. Yeah. I know a friend of mine who had his collar broke, broken, collarbone broken twice because he was complaining about being raped by Rushton and Rushton's friends. Yeah. That was outside of the Anglican Church. Rushton also had a pedophile ring or was, I believe he was the main instigator for the pedophile ring personally, but um, that incorporated the Catholics as well. Yeah. Um, I know that I've been raped by many Catholic priests. They used to come to the boys' home at Aberdeer. They used to have their meetings and then the boys would desert. And I'm not just saying that on my own. I also, when I gave my evidence to the Royal Commission, there was another fellow that was actually living at the boys' home when I was taken there because I didn't live there. And he gave the same evidence and so it's not that I'm just talking on what I think. It's actually been collaborated yeah. by a yeah. separate witness. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so can I ask, was your father part of that pedophile ring, Russian? And My father, I have one distinct memory of Rushton, my father, and another man at this man's home mm -hmm. and this home was a place where there was a sadistic group mm -hmm. and I believe one of the reasons why the Catholics have been a lot more um, shall I say visible in Newcastle mm -hmm. is because there's a lot of people being abused by the Catholics and they're still alive the Anglicans under Rushton was a sadistic group and I think, I personally believe half of the people aren't alive. Yeah. I know of people living now that never gave evidence to the Royal Commission. But I've talked to them and they live on the margins of society and Rushton was a cruel man. People think, yeah, he was just a pedophile. Well, just a pedophile. But think that, yes, he was a pedophile. But no, there was a lot more to him than that. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you feel that the Royal Commission could have handled that better? Oh, there's a lot of things to the Royal Commission that... Look, what happened was I was supposed to get counselling from the Royal Commission, so I got in touch with the mob that was handling the counselling. Mm. They said to me, this man, so-and-so, is the best we've got. Mm. And because of my compound trauma, I thought, well, I need the best, basically, that they got. So I went to, I actually went to him in Singleton. Um, that's another thing. Like I had to go to him, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, even though it's an hour and a half from my place, you know, I still have to do the travelling. Um, then also, if you've had anything to do with that sort of thing, if you do a session and then you get triggered, 
it takes a long time to come down and get yourself sorted again before you can drive home. But anyhow, I drove to Singleton, had a meeting with this man, and after two hours meeting with him, he said to me, he said, I cannot help you. He said, I do not have the expertise to help you. So that, that was that. Well, left me in a lurch. Then I go from there to the, the psych. I don't, I'm not sure the woman's name, but she was um, a psychiatrist in Newcastle who assessed you for um, getting clinical help. And um, she again di diagnosed me with DID and then said I need a specialist psychiatrist or psychologist, and she gave me some names. But because they weren't under victims of crime, they wouldn't take me on anyhow. So basically I've been, I did go to one in Gosford for 12 months, but I've found that most psychologists that I've come in touch with and other survivors that I've talked to, there's not a lot of psychologists that actually can help people with complex trauma because it's mm. such a minimal amount of their training. Mm. Um, mm. So it's very difficult to find someone that's good. There are so many people out there practising yeah. that really have no idea about trauma. Yeah. A lot of people aren't diagnosed with DID yeah. um, and a lot of people have had trauma, especially in the family. Yeah. Um, from a very young age, yeah. have DID. But I'd like to say now that just because you do have DID, and which is basically multiple personality disorder, yeah. all of my parts personally are young. I have a 17-year-old, yeah. the oldest, but most of my parts are like from, well, they're from seven months old to 14, and then most of my abuse finished when I was 14 and a half. I had one lot of abuse at 17. But in that, all those separate parts take, have an influence in your life. And fundamentally, um, before I healed, I believe most of my life was run by my 14-year-old and a 7-year-old. Right. And a 7-year-old. Mm, so most of my yeah. decisions not in life, I wasn't really yeah. functioning a lot of my time in my adult yeah. I was functioning from the reactions of a 14-year-old yeah. who just needed to escape and a 7-year-old who thought he could do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a pretty volatile combination. combination. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Yeah. But um, coming back to the Royal Commission again, yeah. I personally, because I have DID, giving evidence and actually listening to the evidence being given I actually split several times, but I actually split badly three times. If it hadn't have been for my partner, who is also DID and also done a lot of work, the psychologists that were there had no idea how to handle me because they've never had any training in that. Yeah. So fundamentally, if you're going to work with people that have had severe trauma, it's like there's two levels. There's a level for people that have had trauma and then there's compound trauma. So the compound trauma people need a different type of support than what the Royal Commission was able to give yeah, or, right. or knew how to give. Yeah. And I don't blame them as such, but I do blame the fact that they, their lack of understanding of complex trauma. Right. You know, when they're going to go into something like that, they need to actually realise what they're putting their feet in. Right. 
because I know I'm not the only one that was abused from a very young age in, in our society. And this is something our society has to come to terms with and become aware of. Yeah. I don't know how to stop it, by the way. <laughs> but it is something that we need to become aware of, that this happens. And so a person that can appear to be functioning quite well in society can be just hiding right behind a great big mask where they're screaming behind that mask. As a teenager, I always felt alone, but I also, I also felt very aggressive. I used to fight a lot. My brothers and I used to fight. My bigger brother used to beat me up all the time. Very angry family. Now I understand why. Mm. Um, at that time, I didn't understand why. I just knew that our family was poor, but my dad was never poor. But my family was poor. My dad always drove a new car. My dad always had what he wanted. Mm. He always had soft drink. He always had anything he wanted, really, but not us kids. Tells you a lot about my father. Mm. And then, of course, the women that were in his life were under his control as well. I fought my way through my teenage years, really, in many ways, until I was about 21. And then I had a fight with a guy who both of us ripped so much off each other that we were very, very hurt. Um, and then I thought, this isn't worth it. Fighting's just not worth it. So I actually stopped fighting. You mean physical fighting? Physical fighting, yeah. yes. Yeah, physical yeah. fighting. Nobody wins a physical fight, really. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually quite against violence, to be honest. Um, Maybe because Dad used to beat the shit out of me as well, apart from raping me. Um, so, yeah, and then, but because of DID, I was very fortunate that I didn't actually have the memories of my abuse. And by this time, Father Peter had come into my life when I was ten and a half, almost eleven. Um, he raped me for three years. And during that time, he took me to many other places where I'd be raped and, and at times physically hurt, physically abused. Um, luckily, as you get a bit older, they lose interest in you because you're not such a pretty little thing anymore. Um, the last rape I had from my father was when I was 17. That was a punishment rape. But... Because I couldn't remember these things and I hadn't remembered these things, I had a group of friends, but I always needed to be in control. My friends tried all sorts of drugs, but I couldn't do that because then, and I didn't know I needed to be in control at that stage. I just knew that I wasn't doing that because something could happen. Um, then I met a lovely woman, my first wife. Um, we got married, had three beautiful children, and I had a good group of friends um, who had children much the same age, like we were in our mid-twenties. Mm. I was quite good at business, and I actually was very good at working, so I would work very hard and long hours, mm. which is a typical way of keeping down your emotions. Mm. Um, eventually I became what I would call a workaholic. Um, 
I worked sometimes three businesses at once. There was one stage where I was doing full-time university study. I had my lawns maintenance business and I was running a vineyard. Well, it was 263 acres with 27 years of vineyard, 27 acres of vineyard on it. Then, of course, I got so run down that I had a collapse and spent 10 days in hospital. Then my wife said to me, well, I'm leaving and going back to town. You can stay here if you want to, but I'm taking the kids with me. She had two children. We had two children at the time and my wife was pregnant to my third child. She said, because all you're doing here is killing yourself. And basically looking back on it, that's exactly what I was because I had really no self-respect and no value in myself. So I had to prove that I was worthwhile. The only way I could prove that I was worthwhile was by working and showing people that I was capable. And yet on the same token, no matter every time I proved that I was capable at one thing, I would start another because even though I proved I was capable, I still could not accept the fact that I was. Do you feel like you can never be good enough? Most definitely. And my father used to reinforce that as well because he was still alive at that time. I would visit him because at that stage I still didn't have my memories. And he would say to me things like, oh, but you know so-and-so, he did this and he did that and he did something else. Anything I did was never good enough. Mm. Never good enough. He always kept me in my position. Mm. And he also, I've heard this term gaslighting, He used to gaslight my brothers and sisters and since he's deaf I've learned that they also had the same sort of thing happening with them. He would run down my siblings and then I'm sure he was also running me down when he was talking to them about me. But you're the best and the most important when he's talking to you. It's just all part of the control. After I went back to town to live... Life went on again, Mm. stayed very busy, still again was running a couple of businesses at a time. Then I went to a place called Lightning Ridge to Opal Mine. Um, Same thing there, I just continued working. I was doing property development as well as Opal Mining. And then again, I got really sick. They say I had some sort of a virus They don't know really what that virus was. They did all sorts of tests, but they never ever could find what it was. But they had me in isolation in the hospital. I was so sick. I believe I had a near-death experience in that, um, which was quite interesting. And I'd just like to say at that point, whether you use this or not, Mm -hmm. that that near-death experience was like I was on a big plane and people kept walking up to me and wanting to talk me take me away like off a big disc and I wouldn't go and then eventually four people came and they were taking me and at that time I called to my brother who had already committed suicide I called him and told him I don't want to go I don't want to die and the next thing I remembered after that I was awake and I was living so I have no fear of death really now after that that, like if you do have a near-death experience that when you come back, you don't have that fear of death. No. Most of us do. Like. Yeah, it was very pleasant, really. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
And it was just like going for a walk with some people. But I knew that if I went for that walk, I was yes, gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, and it, it kind of sounds a bit like your, your brother might have intervened up there. And yeah. Now he wants to go back. Yeah, yeah. That's actually how it feels, to be quite honest, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but that's, you know, a bit of digression. But, yeah. but um, mm. so, no, most of my life, I've been quite successful in business because I'm willing to work longer and harder. And mm. But I have been to the points in my life where I couldn't work any more or earn any more money when I still needed to. So I've also almost gone financially bankrupt. Luckily, mm. I didn't. I had a good bank manager and he actually helped me. Mm. Um, but my accountant still says, I don't know how you didn't go bankrupt because when you're pushing the boundaries all over the place in your life, even though I wasn't pushing them. My family always tried to keep safe and keep close. But as far as work and business goes, it was just do as much as you can. Always thought I needed to be rich. Mm-hmm. And I never had any money mm-hmm. because I always felt poor. Mm-hmm. Now I earn less money than I've earned in my life and I feel richer than I've ever felt. And I've always got money in my wallet now, where in those days I didn't. And yet at the time when I split up with my first wife, we were worth almost $2 million. I still did not realise, and I'm talking 20 years ago, I did not realise that I was wealthy. I could not understand that I actually, I had money. Is that like you, it was hard to understand that you actually created that through your hard work? Well, I actually probably, to be honest, if you say that to me, I would almost have to say that I don't feel at that stage that I could create anything. No. Where now I do believe that. Yeah. Because I believe I've failed a lot and I've looked at my life. But as far as my attitude to myself, I had no value. I actually had no value. Yeah. And so anything I created still had no value. So I could not understand that I created this thing. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah. It made sense. Yes. Yeah. So now it's altogether different, and that's because of my healing journey. I've had over 500 sessions with psychiatrists, psychologists and counsellors. I've had had seven stays at Heal for Life, which is a healing program in the Hunter Valley, um, and I not only did seven sessions, they're weekly, they go for a week each one. Mm-hmm. Then I actually then did their program, which is training you to work with people that have had trauma, mm-hmm. um, which is a, it goes over a year, mm-hmm. a week, a month. Then I actually work with people in the centre for a couple of years on some of their programs. Mm-hmm. Then I also volunteered there and, and actually got paid, had paid work there as well. Um, I'm a great believer in their program. Yep. Well, I think the most important thing is two, I'd like, there's two things I would like to say. Mm. One is there's mm. Heal for Life for me helped me a lot to understand my trauma, to understand why I behaved the way I did why people behave the way they did to me. Mm. But fundamentally, it gives you the opportunity to, and this is really hard, 
that gives you the opportunity to go to points of trauma mm. and to what they call take your power back. Mm. And that can be really scary. Mm. And if you go there to take your power back, you actually have to become very vulnerable. And I would say it's almost like allowing yourself to realise that you could die. I mean, that sounds really harsh, but, but if you are brave enough to go there, it changes just like that. Yeah. It does. It's sort of like you go there and you're so scared and you're so overwhelmed, but then you say to that person that's perpetrating on you, fuck off, excuse the language, or get off, leave me alone. You have no rights. You have no right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to kill you or I'm going to mentally mm -hmm. or I'm going to stab you or I'm going to smash you to pieces or I'm going to mm -hmm. crap on your head, spit in your face, push you away, call you any name that I feel like. But you take the power back from that person. Mm. And once you take your power back in that situation, that changes that situation. And then the secret to all this is once that changes, you don't trigger. You don't trigger. Oh, right. And that's the point. The things that's associated with that trauma, you don't trigger anymore because it moves it from the amygdala to the hippocampus. And so then... In your life, you're free of that trigger. Because you've moved it up into the a long -term conscious memory. memory. Yes. Where you can like deal with it. Well, you still can look at it. Yeah. You still know it happened. You yeah. still can see it. It's yeah. like my psychologist calls it a draw memory. Okay, you pull a drawer out. You can there. look at it if you want. If you don't look at yeah. it, you shut the drawer. Yeah, yeah, but it's not hidden anymore. It, that's right. It's not hidden, yeah. and you're not reacting without yeah. any conscious knowledge yeah you're not yeah. triggering from a place where you don't even know that's there like yeah. the the true um example of a trigger is when you're okay and then next minute you're not okay and you don't even know why but you know your temperature's gone up your heart's pumping you you're feeling unwell your heart's hurting yeah and then you think well, why am i feeling like this yeah. You know, apart from the fact that the people go right off and just go, I want to smash somebody or break something. Yeah. or So it's coming from just an animal reaction. Yeah. yeah. And so if you yeah. can de-trigger by actually getting to these points of trauma and de-trigger yourself, that, that takes away the triggers. That takes away yeah. the triggers for that trauma. Fair enough, if there's other traumas, you have to go and face those ones. Yeah. But if you can take your power back, then you no longer trigger mm. associated with that memory or that event. Yeah, that's amazing. And that, that is what you were able to do in the, those pro, that program at Heal for Life. I've done it with all my parts, basically. Yeah. I think it's fundamental that you... And this is where right hand and left hand writing is really important. Yeah. Right hand you, is your conscious memory and your conscious being and left hand is like more your subconscious and your emotional self. Every time I find a part or a part manifests itself to me and I've had parts manifest to themselves to me over a 
straight away or over weeks. Some One part I had to write to my 17-year-old part who was very strong. He was my main protector part. Over three months, at first he just told me, fuck off, go away, leave me alone. I don't want anything to you. You're an idiot, you know? Mm. So I'd keep writing to him. Oh, and telling him fundamentally, you're part of me and I'm part of you. We're in this together. If we don't heal this, we're going to suffer. So we have to walk this path and we have to work this together. And for three months I would write to him and he'd tell me, go away, go away, go away. But I kept on persevering and telling him that I will care for him. But fundamentally most important for me anyhow is I would tell them my parts that I would protect them with my life. No one will right. ever do that shit to them again. Right, so and you, were, you were there to, to kind of um, protect them and to say, I'm going to look after you. That's right. To make sure nothing bad's going to happen to you. Fundamentally, I yeah. would die first before they got hurt yeah, again. Yeah, wow, that's so powerful. Yes, and that's where, yeah. for me, no matter mm-hmm. what happens, that's amazing. I will protect my parts yeah. with my whole being. And, you know, going back to what we were saying before, that means that, to do that, you have to have strong self-worth. Well, yeah. I'd like to tell you about when I first had my memories and what mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd always seen abuse, okay? Mm-hmm. So because I had a memory of seeing, it's like a piece of wood that goes around in the older buildings about a metre off the floor, and they used to have timber vertical yeah. slats, and then yeah. they'd have the particle board or whatever above that, a little timbering. So I thought I'd saw abuse when I was a child. But what it was, was when I had my memories, the first time Father Peter Russian raped me, he raped me across the bed and I was looking up to that board. So I had this memory of a green wall, I called it my green wall experience, where I thought I'd seen abuse. But for two and a half years, I worked with two friends of mine, one that did NLP and another one that did um, journey work. But I would always come to this black spot, this black thing, and I I could never get through it. I could never, even with all the help, I could still never get through it. And I probably never faced that black spot till about four years after my main memories really started. Because the memories don't come just one, and then you have this memory and everything's there revealed. It's like a jigsaw. It's just one comes, another part comes, another part comes. And the more parts that come, the more you see the story and the more the story fits together then the other parts come in to help you fill it in. Now I don't know how to describe that other than that one thing I'll say during my whole process of my journey I never once read a book I never once looked outside of myself for what happens except for when it first happened because I didn't want to be influenced by anything I wanted to just to unfold out of me, to get it out of me, because I always had this thing, I need to get it out of me. And so, but when I had my first memory, Rushton had been outed by the church and they said he was a pedophile. Well, I rang the church up to say, no, he wasn't a pedophile, no, he was a good bloke, all that sort of thing. And then I'd been talking to the bloke a couple of times who was in charge of the investigation. And then... I'd finished talking with my mother. I was at my mother's house and we'd finished talking about that. And about five minutes later, she just turned and she said, oh, maybe the Green Wall experience was at your priest's house. I just collapsed. I collapsed. I physically collapsed. And it took me about two hours to even be able to function again. 
But I got myself together. And the next day, I went to where I knew he lived at the time. And so I drove to his house, or the house that he lived at, and I went up the stairs and I knocked on the door to see if I'd had a false memory because I thought, okay, people have false memories. I'd heard of false memories. So I went to this house and I knocked on the door and the person answered and I said, look, I had a friend lived here years ago. I said, I just wanted to know. I said, this sounds really strange, but I wanted to know, did you have this rail around the walls? And he said, yeah, it was in the whole house. He said, there's still one part there which was in the hallway. He said, we took it all out. He said, but we're going to put it back in now. He said, because we like it. Well, I just said thank you and went down the stairs and completely collapsed in my car. And then I went from there straight to the psych hospital at um, at um, uh, the Marta Hospital. Yeah. And I remember reading the report that was on the thing and it said a dishevelled man. And I don't normally look dishevelled and I'm not normally a dishevelled man. But... I was a dishevelled man and so I spent three days in there. Then I thought I could go home. I thought I'll be okay, you know, this will be all right. So I went home and I tried to work. I actually did not even half a day and then I completely melted down and I don't know what would have happened to me, just my son, I was living in Foster, my son rang me up and he said, he said, hi, Dad, and I couldn't hardly speak or anything. And because I've been an over-functioner all my life, he's used to me being the, the capable man, mm-hmm. and here I am not even being able to verbalise. Yeah. And he drove straight from Newcastle, and luckily when he saw me, he got in touch with the guy from the church who I'd been dealing with, yeah. and I'd actually started seeing a psychologist, her and my doctor, and he organised it all, and he got me into private hospital, and I was in there for the best part of a month. Then they wanted to send me home, and I was terrified of going home. I didn't realise at the time I was terrified of society. That's what I was terrified of. Mm. So they did. the guy from the church gave me the option of Heal for Life, foundation out of Quarrabalong. So anywhere was better than going home. So then I went there, did their program, but really at that time I was so overwhelmed I didn't get to take in much of their program except for the fact I was feeling safe. When I was due to leave there, I had my biggest meltdowns when I was due to leave because I was going back out into the world, which then had become very unsafe for me. Um, My son um, came and took me and he took me back to the psychiatric hospital at the Mata. I spent another three days there and then I went home. Somewhere in that, then I went back to Hill for Life after only two weeks, I think it was. Um, same scenario though, I basically, I actually had to go to Hill for Life about four times before I started to actually be able to what they call um, de-trigger and start to deal with my mm-hmm. um, some of my memories. Mm. Um, during that time after that, I also went back to the psych hospital at the Mater again. And then I'd like to talk about some of the 
healing process at Hell for Life, actually. Yeah. The healing process there is, it sounds funny, but the whole program is based around getting people to trigger. And this is where it's so different to anywhere else that I've come across so far. Yeah. Everywhere else is happy to listen to people, what they're doing and what they're saying, and, and to try and get them through. And I've had psychologists do that with me as well. Just got to get me from this week to the next week to the next week. But mm -hmm. Heal for Life isn't like that. Heal for Life is about getting you to a point of trauma because their program is based around once you can get to a point of trauma, then you can deal with it, then you can heal from it. Mm -hmm. And this is a fundamental point which is different to most programs. Even at Belmont Hospital, which I've been to twice, which is a specialised hospital for disassociation and it's three-week programs. They've, so I went there twice and you have a psychiatrist every day. I got a lot more from Heal for Life than I ever got from Belmont. Mm -hmm. um, but not saying I didn't get stuff from Belmont, but fundamentally um, Heal for Life gave me something I could hold on to. Mm. Their program, Liz Mulner's got a book um, which talks about the program. But, and she's the one who set it up, it's run by survivors for survivors. And I think fundamentally that's important. Like a lot of people have said to me, oh, these people are running the program. They're not healed properly. So how can they run the program? You know, because they're still damaged. And I fundamentally say to that is, they may be damaged, but when you're more damaged than that, you look at someone that you know is damaged and then you realise there is hope. There is hope that you can actually get better. Because they have. Yes, yeah. that's right. And so fundamentally that's yeah. so important. Yeah. Because I've been there, and seriously, most times when you work there, they have 12 people in their program. There's usually two or three that are on their last legs. Where they're there because they're going to top themselves. They've had it. They can't have it. They can't get any more help. There's no one left that's giving them any real assistance. And, and I've been there myself as well in that situation. And, but you leave there with hope because you see these people that are working there who are like yourself. They're people that have struggled and they've worked hard, whatever. They're coping. And they know it from the inside, don't they? Yes. And they're coping. Yes. Yeah, so they've worked something out, haven't they? Yes. Yeah. And you think, well, what can that be? But once you do the program, as I said, they want yeah. you to trigger. So yeah. the program's based for over five days. The first three days is getting into your child getting into your inner child. So they're bringing you slowly down mm -hmm. and then they do things that actually will trigger people. Yeah. Then the um, mm -hmm. assistants, peer support people work with them on de-triggering them, yeah. asking them, the most important is ask them how they feel. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. And deal with the emotion. Yeah. It's not the physicalness, it's the emotion that's tied to the memory. Yeah. So you have to get into the emotion. Yeah. And then once they're into the emotion, you say, well, what would you like to say to those people now? Or what would you like to do to them? Mm -hmm. They have an anger pit where they can go and smash. They put glasses on and gloves and all that. They do all the safety things. But you can go and smash plates. You can, And I say to the people, you know, what are you angry at? And they say, I'm angry. I say, well, who are you angry at? You know, like this is the thing. They get them 
the more you can get them into their pain yeah. and into their anger, the more chance there is of them hurling from it. Yeah. So you actually want them to trigger. You want them to feel their pain. You want them to, and then they can do something about it. And then when they do something about it, they take back their power in that situation. Yeah. And once they take back their power, then that moves it, like I said, from the yeah. amygdala to the hippocampus, and it becomes a draw memory then. It's no longer, you no longer get triggered by that memory. It kind of loses its power. It, it loses its power of reaction. Yeah. yeah. It goes from yeah. being a reaction to being, okay, that was shit. That happened to me. Yeah. Right. Whether you like those people still or you talk to them still or whatever, that's your choice. But that's it goes, it. yes, it diffuses yeah. it. Yeah. And then part of the process, once they do that, then they have to nurture its. The, the idea is for them to nurture that child or that part that's told their story. Yeah. And that may be just by sitting on a swing, it may be taking a swim, mm -hmm. maybe eating something nice or having a nice drink. But it's sort of verifying that part of you that was injured and, and nurturing that part, mm -hmm. giving it love, which mm -hmm. fundamentally that part wasn't getting love no. at the time. So it shows the part that... One, you as the adult that's looking after that part can be trusted yeah. and be loved and cared for and yeah. that they actually have things in their life that have hurt them but they can move forward from that hurt. Yeah. And so I can say I've done that with many, many parts of me because it's fundamentally the same whether it's one part and one time or if it's ten times or a hundred times. Yeah. It's still fundamentally the same process where you actually have to go there and face that pain. After I'd been to Hell for Life probably five, maybe six, maybe it was the sixth time. And part of the program is to do a lead meditation where you go, it helps you become part with your child, your inner child, your inner emotions and that sort of stuff. And then you get the people to move to draw some sort of a picture or try to draw some sort of a picture with your left hand. So you're getting in touch with your emotion and then a peer support person will come and sit with you, usually not, not straight away, not at all. The person, you know, it's, sometimes it might be five, ten minutes before someone will come and sit with them because the person really, you watch them, if you're a carer, till the person actually has to get into that emotion. And sometimes people can't get into emotion, so they actually don't draw anything, but a lot of people say you've got to you've got to watch for that moment when they're virtually in it and not completed it but almost completed and some people say a person can't draw at all you may go next to them and say to them how you, you always it's always about feelings it's never about thinking because yeah. if it's about thinking then it goes straight into the practical mind you don't want to go to the thinking it's yeah. always about the emotion and the feeling so it's always about feelings and you also approach them from the left side not the right side mm -hmm. which is important and then if they can't draw at all you try to get them to express even a color of a crayon or a pencil or paint just even a line sometimes a line just a line on a piece of paper can be enormously as hard for a person to do as to face their perpetrator mm. because it's saying it's real mm. because that's real. That, that line 
it's real. And once you make it real, you have to do something about it. And most survivors spend most of their time not wanting it to be real. So once they do that, and that's where the courage is, they do that, they start, some don't even realise they're doing it at first. They'll do the whole picture of a sunny sky or some will do stuff that's so dark you don't even want to look at it. But then you talk to them about how they feel about that, what makes them feel associated with it, you know, how, how did that make you feel drawing that, how does that make you feel doing that, and then the person will get into their stuff usually. And then if they trigger, and that's really what you want, they trigger, then they get all emotional and they crack and then you take them outside to an anger pit or you take them just out to scream at the universe or at the person that, you know. And by this time, everyone's used to people screaming and shouting, so it's not a problem. Yeah. Um, and you'll go and do whatever process is needing for that person to let their anger out, let their emotions flow, whether they cry or whether they shout or whether they spit or whether they draw a picture and go and crap on it in the toilet, whatever they need to do to actually take their power back from that person. And then you help them to understand they have to nurture their part as well. And then they go off. It's amazing how wonderful you feel after a process like that. Yeah. People would think that, oh, yeah, they're going to leave or they're going to be upset or whatever. No, it's not like that. They are so relieved. Yeah. And I've been the same myself. I'm so relieved that I could do that. My biggest process I ever did there was in this, this is in my journey, um, was going... We'd done the drawing thing, and but oh, we were going to do the drawing thing. But in the meditation before it, you go into a garden. And the first time when I went to Hillflies in this garden, it was all just dead. There was nothing there. The second time, mm. there was a little bit of green in one spot. Mm. Third time, yeah, I could get plants and flowers, and there's a, you know, a creek and all that. Very beautiful in my mind slowly, slowly over a period of times I was going there. Then eventually the garden was very beautiful. So I started the parts that I'd been working with, which is several, many, <clears throat> I would bring into that garden to sit around and I would sit with them and, and it was very beautiful. But during this process of this meditation, dark came in, okay ultimate black, like the thing I'd been working with with my friends that I could never handle, mm -hmm. came in and I couldn't finish the meditation and I left and went up to my room. Mm -hmm. And I laid there for a while. I thought, I can't, I can't, I have to go back. If I don't go back, mm -hmm. I will die. Mm -hmm. I will actually die because I can't, these are me, these parts are me. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. These, all these parts make who I am as a person. So you have I have to, I have to save them. Yeah. I had to actually save them. So I went back, the, the whole thing had virtually finished by then with the other people and I went back to one of the carers and I said, I need you to take me through that meditation again. Yeah. So I went into the, into the meditation and of course that black is in my garden. It's there. 
and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what do I do? And I knew if I did not go in there, no matter what happened, no matter what happened, I could have dropped down. And I mean, this might sound ridiculous to people, but I felt that I could have maybe possibly gone there and died. Really, it was that severe. Like that. That's how it felt to me. And I thought, well, yeah. I can't live without my parts anyhow because yeah. that's who I am and that's how my life is now because yeah. I'd, I'd learned to love all these parts. I'd work with them. I'd learn yeah. to love them. I walk into that garden with that thought in my mind, this could be the end of me. But I walked in through that like there was a gate and as I walked into the gate, the blackness just went whew, like as if someone threw it away. Just it just disappeared because that was my courage. And that's the courage it takes, in my opinion, to heal. You have to be willing to face death. death because what happens is fundamentally, when you're being abused severely, you die. Yeah. You yeah. die, your being dies, you die. And so, in a way, you're already dead. And walking into that blackness and that darkness gave me back my life. And I now am a different person than what I was then. Such a different person. Because I don't get triggered anymore. I can go to Hill for Life, work with the people. They're suffering. I have sympathy for, I can work with. But I don't go into my pain when I work with somebody. Right. And so fundamentally, that was a really important thing for me. Yeah, I'd done all the work with all my different parts, but yeah. fundamentally, that darkness was still there until that day. Wow. That's a very powerful story. <laughs> yeah, it is. Really powerful like that. It was your courage and bravery that um, took you back there and was able to really face it. I think fundamentally... It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. Right, totally get that. Yeah. Yeah, because you were like literally facing death. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. real you or not, not real. No. Yeah. No, I didn't. And yeah. and it felt palatable. Yeah. It felt that this could be yeah, it. This could be it. But fuck excuse the language, but it's if you wanna live all the way through my practice of Health for Life, they used to play a song called Real. Mm -hmm. It's about a wooden boy who wanted to be real, Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. I used to bust so badly about it because all of my life I wanted to be real, not just a thing that people used. Mm -hmm. And that day I became real. Wow. So. Yeah, you really, it was, you embodied it. it was I learned to love myself. Yeah. I learned to put myself yeah. ahead of all my fear. Yeah. yeah. Whatever myself was, I actually learned to understand that yeah. I am valuable. Yeah. I am an important person. Yeah. And no matter what I do in life and what choices I make, I'm basically fundamentally a nice person who was fucking damaged yeah. by people using me for their pleasure. Yeah. That's not who I was. No. I was just a beautiful little boy who just wanted a freaking good life and to play and have fun with his friends. Yeah. And they took that. Yeah. And they turned me into a scared, hiding person. Mm. 
So mm. but I have a few stories that are similar, sort of not, not as deep as that one, mm. but similar. I've been working on my memories. My memories started 10 years ago. Mm. I want to tell a story about what I decided how I was going to work with my memories. Mm. It was the third time I was in the Marta Hospital, psych hospital. There was me and three other patients there. They were all survivors. One was a cutter, woman that cuts mm-hmm. her own body. Mm-hmm. And she was an absolute mess and a walking scar is how I describe her. Mm-hmm. And she was in for cutting her throat. Mm-hmm. The other guy who was in there had apparently written two books about his abuse and I wrote something about it. He must never look in a mirror because, you know, he's... He was so dishevelled and such an untidy person and, you know, dried drivel on his mouth and he never looked any better no matter what day it was. Um, And then a third person who was in there when I got there, but that night he was going off and they took him away somewhere. Now, I don't know where they took him, but I didn't want to go there. And that day I thought to myself, this will either kill me or I have to get better. I have to have an attitude where I make every effort in my life to beat this. And I thought to myself, and I talked to these other patients, their abuse actually was no more severe, even severe as what mine was, and I'm not trying to judge them in any way, shape or form. It was just everyone's abuse is different and it's personal. But I thought to myself, this will kill me if I don't do something about it. So I chose that day, no matter what I did, I would work with all my heart and effort and mind to overcome what had happened to me and what I'd remembered, started remembering. Because my memories came over three to four years. Mm. They didn't come just in one bit. They don't come like that, not in my case anyhow. And so that journey started there. And I did counselling twice a week for many years and hospital stays, as I've said. Mm. And, mm. and But I'd like to say something else here too. Mm. I do not believe that trauma is only in your mind. I believe it actually is held in your body as well. Yeah. And I've also done a lot of work with what people would call IE shamanic or mystic or whatever you like healers to do with releasing stuff from my body and specialises people that specialise in different types of um, massage mm-hmm. um, Hawaiian massage like mm-hmm. masters in their field mm-hmm. about releasing trauma from my body mm-hmm. and I've probably spent a lot of money a lot of time doing that as well mm-hmm. and I think it's fundamentally important because I don't think the mind is separate from the body no mm. absolutely yeah Did you, have you ever done kinesiology yes yeah. yeah I have and I've actually had a talk to people that reckon it's done them a lot of good yeah yeah because it is mm. sort of about releasing trauma from yes muscles. yes and that's yeah. that's it because when you are abused, of course you're going to be yeah. you're going to hold it in your muscles and hold yeah. it in your body. Yeah. And like now they're talking about muscles having memory and yeah. and cells having memory. Yeah. Um, I believe for a yeah. fact, and that's where I used to have like I call my hundred year old man and and my I used to freeze as well where I couldn't move and. Yeah. They were yeah. triggers. They were they were a body trigger. Yeah. 
somehow or other. Yeah. I, I can't explain them, but yeah. the thing is yeah. my body reacted, yeah, no, not totally my mind. Yeah, totally. There's one other thing I would like to tell you about, which I found it's to do with depression. And I haven't had depression since I did this work. Right. And I find it's really quite amazing. Mm. Um, I separated with my partner about a year ago now. And when the separation, it wasn't my choice, it was hers. Yeah. And for the first couple of months, I would just sit. And of course, I'd be depressed and I was just sitting. And then working with my counsellor, and I was talking to her about that. But one day I was sitting there and it just came to me. I thought, when did I first feel this? When was my first feeling of this, this whole feeling of how I felt when I was sitting? Because when I sit when I, myself, when I was depressed like that, I would sit without thinking. I would just sit. No thoughts. No, because I've actually done a lot of meditation as well in my life, so I'm actually fairly good at stilling my mind. Um, but I would sit just quietly and just be there. Like, but as if the world is actually oppressing me. So sitting there being oppressed. And I thought, when, have I, when did I first feel like this? And it dawned on me. It's the same feeling I had when I was a little boy of probably six, when my father was abusing me. And I used to wag school as a six-year-old. And I used to go, there was this derelict house, and I used to sit underneath the back stairs of this house, which was like there's a cavity in the old mm. staircase. And I would just sit there. And I thought, that's the feeling I used to have when I used to sit there because I didn't want anything to do with the world. No. I didn't want the world touching me. Yeah. And that still, that was the same feeling. I didn't want the world touching me because yeah. the world's dangerous. Yeah. So I still had that feeling yeah. in my being. And then I thought, okay. So I talked to my counsellor about it and she said, well, what do you want to do with that little child that's yeah. sitting under that house? Yeah. And I said... I want to take him out. I want to take him outside, out into the sunlight. Mm. So we did a process where I held his hand, talked to him, and I took him out onto the grass at the back of the house. Mm. And I gave him an ice cream and told him who I was. I told him who I was. I'm him, although I'm older. You know, I've had a life and, you know, I've come to help you now and, mm. you know, Again, the same thing, no one's going to hurt you. I will not let anyone hurt you and, and that I will protect him. Mm. And you don't have to sit under those stairs anymore. And that was a wonderful experience. Mm. Then the next week I went to where that house was and it just so happens that it's vacant land now. And on the way I went and bought two packets of lollies. So I took those two packets of lollies and I went up and I sat where I'd imagined eating the ice cream. Yeah. And I sat there and we ate those lollies. <laughs> and since that day, yeah, sometimes I get a bit sad and that, but I haven't had depression. And I've had depression on and off my whole life. Yeah. And that was like six months ago now. Yeah, right. And I've never been happier in my life. Wow. But I brought that little boy out from where he was hiding, yeah. out into the sunlight, 
showed him I cared about him, then informed him that I actually really did care. I went back to reinforce that I cared and now he's happy. He's happy because he doesn't have to hide anymore. So there's some experiences that I've had on my healing journey which are really huge for me. Um, But I've never given up. I'm still healing now. I still watch for anything I can learn, anything that I can see that actually is going to give me that good life that I want because I understand now that I deserve to have a a better life than what I had. You know, I'm quite excited about my future, even though I'm 66 years of age. I am happy for the first time in my frigging life, I really believe. (laughs) And... You know, I've had two families and I love my children and I loved my ex-wives. But, you know, all that time I was always worried, always concerned. As a matter of fact, my first marriage broke down because I thought nobody needed me and I needed to be needed because that was the only place I got value. I got value from working. I could show and say, I've done that. And I would think, well, at least people think I'm worthwhile because I can do something. But did I have any value? No, not in myself. I'm a survivor of childhood abuse, trauma, imprisonment, torture. And I've spent the first half of my life burying that. And the last 25% of my life, I suppose, no, not even that much, trying to heal from it. It's been a long journey, but it's worth it if you can get to the point of your trauma and take your power back because somebody took it away from you. And as a little child, that's just not fair. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I'm Kat McPhillips and, um, from the University of Newcastle and I'm um, running the podcast series. Um, the Survivor Story Project, and this has been um, my interview with Paul. So, thank you. Excellent. Signing off.